Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's wonderful to see people on a Sunday at 9. I feel like you all get extra credit. Um, you're also here for a really helpful, thoughtful discussion with some experts and some people who are open to more thinking. So part of what I like about this group is no one's an ideologue coming to hammer you with uh, First Amendment theory. It's a group that's continuing to develop its thinking and its practice. Um, before we start, I wanted to thank Steve Herrick in particular. Steve? Steve is um, representing the American Academy of Religion, and he was part of raising the funds to make the Loose State Department um, AAR partnership possible. Uh, he's an advocate for citizenship and for a healthy planet, and he's been a great part of this team. So thank you, Steve. Um, we are going to organize this morning's meetings by, in the first half, having some pretty informal presentations of each person speaking about how he or she came to be in a position to contribute to the public um, service uh, policy lens of their study of religion. Um, and also describing the kind of work they did practically and the kind of partnerships that they developed. And maybe raising some questions for their colleagues because we want to help one another to see where the important differences were and the opportunities that were left unfilled. And then for the second half of the panel, we're going to take some questions and we're going to talk to one another. So um, please think of yourself as part of this conversation. We really are eager to hear uh, what you have to contribute. I'm going to begin by turning to my left and introducing Evan. Evan, will you tell us a little bit about sure. why you're here and what you do? Sure. Uh, so good morning, everybody. Um, I'm glad I have a microphone and a powerful speaker system because you can hear my, my voice is a little uh, under underperforming right now. So uh, first of all, my name is Evan Berry. I'm a professor of philosophy and religion at American University. Uh, I work in the area of religion and the environment, and over the last few years, my research has really taken up questions about the engagement of religious actors with public policy issues connected to climate change. So both the kind of work that those groups do uh, in advocacy circles, the kinds of work that those groups do in disaster relief and humanitarian work, uh, implementation of, of sustainability projects, and, and so on. Uh, and so. First, uh, I'd like to sort of put a caveat at the front end of my remarks that uh, as we began to discuss the possibility of having uh, a panel like this to sort of report back and, and think out loud about our experience uh, working at the State Department and engage uh, with the Academy and with some other folks who are knowledgeable in this area, um, I sort of looked at that in advance as an opportunity to process uh, the experience of having uh, taken a sabbatical and instead of you know sitting in my sweatpants and generating a second book, uh, putting on a suit and leaving the house at like 7.30 in the morning every day. Um, which I'm still sort of kicking myself for in some ways, but then I also think I have quite a lot to reflect on from that experience. And I had imagined that this would be um, a good marker to sort of push me to have processed the event in some way. And I, I have to say, I'm still very much uh, processing it. I'm still uh, chewing on what it means and figuring out how to, to fully integrate it into my own uh, research and teaching life. I think I've found ways to connect my students to opportunities, and I think I've found uh, new questions and ideas, but I have, I'm far from being systematic about it yet, and so I hope that's something that comes up in our conversations today. 
So uh, given my particular area of expertise, uh, when the call for AAR loose fellowship proposals came out a couple of years ago, I was uh, floored to see that among the topics and areas of particular interest listed there was religion and climate change. Uh, I was both uh, pleasantly surprised and um, very surprised by that. Uh, and so I thought I would, uh, that sort of felt to me like an invitation to see what kind of role I might be able to play. And as they say, the rest is history. Um, one thing I would want to say that uh, we, we sort of discussed the idea of putting it on the table, what kinds of qualifications and experiences uh, can be helpful for scholars uh, to, to, as they think about making a move into a policy domain or into a, a government position. Uh, and in this case, um, the kind of work that I do best aligns with what is in State Department jargon called functional work, right? Is issue area um, topics of concern rather than regions of concern. So much like the way that the academy is broken up, there's sort of a, a hierarchy and a set of tensions about how functional and regional issues intersect. And so um, I, my knowledge and my uh, work at State were almost fully on the so-called functional side. Um, in, also, in terms of the communications work, one thing that I have come to appreciate uh, and continue to think about as a kind of uh, method of disseminating academic work are the, are the kind of communications and dissemination strategies uh, that one uses in a place like the State Department or in other government agencies, right? Short memos, um, organization of events that are designed specifically to catalyze partnerships that you anticipate brokering in advance. Uh, these are not necessarily the same kinds of strategies that people uh, in the university world think to deploy, and I'm glad to have sort of learned about those. And I think that sort of practicing communication skills, both in written and in oral uh, terms, is something that's really important for um, thinking about, if, if you're good at those things, those might be opportunities for you to bring your academic work into a, a policy sphere. Um, I also uh, would say that a big part of my so-called qualifications for this position had to do with the, the research networks that I had established, right? The way that a city like Washington, D.C. works, and this is true in other policy domains, is that uh, it's, it's complicated networks of actors and being able to have personal relationships with people who can help uh, make the connections you need. So simply knowing a lot of the folks who work in the faith-based organization advocacy space and having sort of a good sense of what organizations were um, playing an active role in that area, I think was helpful in getting me started not from zero, but with from uh, to get a little bit of a running start. Uh, I also uh, wanted to say a quick something about the kind of work that you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis, just to give folks a sense uh, about this in case it's something they're curious about. So um, maybe I would offer a couple of examples, one of them meant to be uh, more on the positive side, and one of them meant to sort of uh, be a, a cautionary note to folks who are used to working with the kind of freedom and autonomy that comes with uh, academic life. So uh, first, the cautionary note. So relatively early on in my experience, um, we in the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, where both uh, Jerome and I were placed, uh, had the opportunity to think about uh, developing an event where the Secretary of State would have swung by uh, a side event organized by faith-based organizations at the margins of uh, an international environmental gathering. And 
this would have been a situation where the, the secretary would have entered the room, shaken some hands, taken a picture, and left. 20 minutes stops, 15 minutes, probably more likely. And uh, we were in sort of invited to put together a package describing what this would look like, which meant that we had to vet the folks who would have been in the room. We needed to get uh, a, a sort of a spatial orientation of the room and sort of make a plan about who would be where. Uh, we had to create a scenario that was minute by minute how that would happen uh, and uh, like literally scripting every step of that. And that was just to propose to the secretary's office what that event would have been like. And ultimately, we wasn't successful, and the, the, this photo opportunity didn't come to pass. And at the time, because I was relatively, I think, uh, new to the position, that, I found that really frustrating. I basically spent a week putting together documents for uh, somebody else's 15 minutes that never came to pass. But I also realized that that's very much, like, every 15 minutes of the Secretary of State's life is scripted at that kind of a level, and there's people trying to build the right kinds of connections and put him in the right kinds uh, of spaces to make that possible. I also take it as a learning experience, right? We, we come to think that our work uh, is really about our ideas and their, their realization of the world, and that's hardly uh, the way that government functions. And I think there's a value in that, right? There's a value in sort of institutional uh, humility. Uh, the, the, the flip side would be about some of the positives, right? So um, capturing uh, ideas in succinct form on paper is one of the primary things that academic fellows at the State Department do, and there are actually quite a few uh, folks sort of working in in, in government with academic backgrounds, trying to bring their knowledge to bear on particular issues. So generating cables, which are essentially memos about a particular issue, or helping draft speeches, or uh, generating policy advisement on a particular issue. This kind of work can be really uh, rewarding when uh, a snippet that you put together ends up uh, finding its way into a speech, or when a, a cable or a memo that you wrote gets filed away on a permanent basis. And so those, those count as real victories. And I, I think that even if it's difficult to look back and say with any kind of specificity that uh, the AAR Loose Fellowship Project moved policy in any uh, measurable, externally measurable way, I do think uh, we can sort of count these little victories as things that will have, uh, have a shelf life and will uh, lay the groundwork for future, for future work in this area. So I think I'll just wrap it up there. Thanks. Thanks, Evan. Uh, good morning, um, and thank you all for coming. And I wanted again to uh, reiterate my thanks to um, Steve Herrick and the AAR and the Luce Foundation for uh, both putting together today's panel and for funding our experience at the State Department. Um, I was lucky to have Evan as, uh, as I guess, my office mate for the time. Um, I was in the Office of Religion and Global Affairs. Uh, and moving from a situation of being a professor where you have your own office to uh, the, the more open, open uh, office plan that we had at the State Department may have been, I, I thought would be the biggest challenge in, uh, in moving to, uh, to government, but, but in fact I found it to be a delightful experience and one that, uh, that I continue to, uh, to cherish to this day. Um, so my background, uh, I uh, come from a, uh, the study of the relationship of religion and politics, uh, both on a theoretical and practical level. On the theoretical level, I've done much work in the study of political theology, uh, the study of how religious traditions and communities understand the nature of political life, the laws that they live within, the state, and so forth. 
and how these ideas have played out in reality, particularly in changing political situations. And I've also um, spent some time studying what scholars call civil religion, the discourses and practices created and endorsed by the state and its actors and representatives. And in both cases, I have a particular background in modern Jewish thought and a constellation of issues relating to uh, the Jewish religion, the question of the relationship of the Jewish religion and pressures of modernity, anti-Semitism, Jewish nationalism, Zionism, and so forth. And from this background, I, uh, when I came to the State Department, there were a number of different um, both functional and regional areas that I was able to add value to. Uh, in particular, um, I spent a good deal of my time working to advise the special envoy to monitor and counter anti-Semitism. And this is a special position that was created by Congress back in the early 2000s um, to es essentially provide a, a person and a office uh, within the State Department to look at the issue of anti-Semitism globally, uh, to monitor it, and to work uh, to figure out strategies to combat the phenomena where it occurs. And in this capacity, we work to engage civil society actors, um, mostly in Europe, um, but also in North Africa, to develop collaborative projects and to invest in long-term educational strategies to counter the underlying drivers of anti-Semitism in those areas. I also worked on um, the issue of refugees, and particularly the integration of religious minorities um, mostly coming from Islamic uh, countries in Europe. And training uh, to help one of the functions of the uh, Office of Religion and Global Affairs was to try to make the State Department and its embassies and posts around the world smarter in how they thought about religion and to think of us as a, as a kind of internal think tank to develop materials such as case studies to sort of deepen and complicate the way in which diplomats and people working at the State Department think about the relationship of religion and religious communities and religious actors and our foreign policy priorities. And finally, uh, one of the roles of uh, the Office of Religion and Global Affairs was to act as a liaison uh, between religious actors and, and, um, and organizations uh, wishing to engage uh, with US foreign policy and the State Department. So we served as a kind of front door uh, to the State Department to a whole range of both national and international religious organizations. Uh, so that's kind of the, the map of some of the issues that I worked in. I think maybe uh, I'll talk a little bit about what, what my day-to-day -day life was because I had a, a somewhat broader package of, of, um, of tasks than Evan did. Uh, one of the uh, to start with the uh, advising the special envoy to monitor and uh, counter anti-Semitism, one of the things that we wanted to think about was A, what were the perennial issues that were driving anti-Semitism in countries that we had um, good relationships with? And so in what ways that we could use, we could understand what is, what is causing the phenomena on the ground and what tools that we had uh, in the State Department to work with those governments and work with the uh, non-governmental organizations to deal with the problem. And one of the things that, uh, that, that we did was to essentially try to put together a comprehensive database of civil society organizations around the world 
that were working on issues of anti-Semitism and other forms of uh, religious hate and persecution. And then to work with those uh, organizations to develop collaborative projects and to invest in strategies to, uh, to do this. So we found organizations around the world, in France, in Belgium, in Germany, in Morocco, um, and we spent time learning from them, hearing what their issues were on the ground, because the issues were different from place to place, and, um, and finding out ways that we could uh, invest with them to find out if there's something that we could do with an embassy or a consulate or to put them in touch with other organizations in their, uh, in their country or around the world. Um, as far as making the State Department smarter on religion, one of, our key, one of the key uh, things that we would do on a day-to-day -day basis was to advise officials and people out in the field on the particular religious dynamics and, and engagement opportunities that they would face. Um, and this would be something as simple as briefing a diplomat about to go out to a post on the particular issues that he or she might face, um, say, in Israel and Palestine. Uh, so we spent a lot of time both putting together briefings that we were asked to do and also reaching out to diplomats and to other functional areas within the department to offer our advice and expertise on these issues. Um, and thirdly, uh, Evan already mentioned working collaboratively on putting together memos, speeches, um, documents um, for, uh, for the principals in the department. And I think, you know, having worked on a number of memos and speeches and other, other forms of, um, of texts uh, gives you a different understanding of authorship. Um, we. <laughs> Uh, no matter how hard you work uh, in drafting a proposal or drafting a memo or drafting a speech, there will be at least a dozen other pairs of eyes on that document um, who have equities in that issue, who uh, need to clear on whatever you're doing. Um, and sometimes we would be asked to clear on the memos and documents of other bureaus and other, uh, and other uh, individuals as well. So this was a, a two-way or a, one would say a multi-way street. And I think my study of um, the documentary hypothesis in the Hebrew Bible was very, was very helpful here um, in keeping track of you know, who's saying what and why. There is an institutional memory that you're working within, that nothing, in a sense, nothing is new under the sun. All of these issues have been worked, have been worked on at some point, and different, um, different bureaus different both functional bureaus and regional bureaus have different priorities and different takes on a particular issue. Um, so it's important that when even, even something as simple as an appointment request, that organization A wants to meet with the Secretary of State or an undersecretary or some principal in the State Department, um, we would have to write a memo on why that should or should not happen. And that memo would have to be looked at by all of the other bureaus that had equities in that relationship. Um, and that could be uh, a frustrating process when you need something signed off at the end of business and people haven't sent you back the email or aren't answering their phones. So there's this bureaucratic dimension um, that took up a certain amount of time that, uh, that I actually found at times quite frustrating and other times quite fascinating. And you learn a lot about the mechanics of how the building works and also how these issues have developed over time. 
I mean, how hard it is to even make a small change in policy at that level. Um, let me stop there and, and pass on to Todd now, and I think we can talk more in the conversation. Good morning. Is this on? Good morning. Uh, thank you again um, to Steve Herrick. I want to echo what my colleagues have said as well to the Luce Foundation for a, what was an incredible opportunity. I, I sort of feel like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and certainly not something I'd ever planned to do back when I was in graduate school. Uh, the, the paths you take in your career are sometimes uh, quite unexpected and yet rewarding. And I do appreciate uh, the AAR, the Luce Foundation, for creating these pathways my academic area of expertise is uh, Islamophobia. The fear, hostility, hatred of Muslims and of Islam, the exclusionary and discriminatory practices that emanate from this fear and hostility. I study this topic primarily as a religious historian. I pay a lot of attention to modern religious history, particularly as draw in sociology as well. And I'm interested on both sides of the Atlantic, how Islamophobia has evolved and developed, and the connections between the two, which I don't know if scholars pay enough attention to how what happens in Europe uh, in terms of Muslim communities uh, can affect what happens in the United States and vice versa, politically and otherwise. Uh, in in the sort of several years leading up to my um, time in the State Department last year, uh, my research had increasingly moved in the direction of public scholarship. I, uh, I have a lot of passion about public scholarship, translating what I'm writing, how I'm speaking to a, a general audience. I have strong ethical commitments about Islamophobia. I'm not neutral on the topic, and frankly, I don't want any of you to be neutral on the topic either. Uh, and that, that's some of what fed my desire to go into the State Department and, and to try to have this opportunity um, in terms of uh, doing a, another form of public scholarship and engaging a different kind of audience in a different way than I would have been able to do had I stayed, again, on sabbatical uh, in, in my own home. Um, unlike my colleagues, I was assigned not to a functional bureau, but to a regional bureau um, uh, or office. I was assigned to the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, and I worked in an office called the Office of Policy and Global Issues, um, focusing specifically on advising on anti-Muslim racism and Islamophobia in Europe, particularly in terms of how it intersected with um, human rights issues um, and, and freedom of religion, as well as counterterrorism and countering violent extremism and initiatives, uh, acronym CVE, which we use a lot in, 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 on the government side. Um, but uh, to what extent uh, were Muslim communities being engaged and processed and thought of by the US government and their European allies in terms of potential uh, security threats and, and engaged accordingly? And I was before and after the State Department, I was very critical of that model of, of the primary lens through which to engage Muslim communities from government entities is through viewing Muslims as latent security threats uh, th that need to be managed accordingly. Uh, so a lot of my uh, advising was hitting a common theme throughout the year to, to my colleagues at the State Department. B very different from, um, or somewhat different from Evan and, and um, Jerome, I. I wasn't in an office full of other people passionate about religion and its intersection with foreign policy. I was a bit of an outlier in my, in my area. And there's upsides and downsides to that. Uh, I, I actually never have told these two this, but I was a lot of times envious of, oh, it must be fun up in the RGA office, right? You know, what, 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 just talking about religion all day. Uh, and the religion nerd in me uh, really 
had some withdrawal symptoms for a while in my beginning phase of the State Department because in my day-to-day -day work, I had people who were interested in what I did, but they, they didn't have the kind of passion about religion and religion as, as a social political uh, phenomenon that um, I, I imagine people upstairs did um, in, in the Religion Global Affairs Office. So I, I sometimes had that envy, um, but I, I, th I think there's actually was a lot of value for me to be where I was and to be that conversation partner for um, a lot of my colleagues for whom this, it, it wasn't sort of natural to think about some of the questions about religion's intersection with, um, with politics and uh, engaging religious actors that, um, that I was so passionate about. So, so I, I appreciated that opportunity in many um, ways. In terms of, of the, the sort of stuff I did uh, on a regular basis, I, and I actually had to split this in half, uh, I was there for about half of uh, the, half my time was the end of the Obama administration. And the other half was the beginning of the Trump administration. Just remember what I said in the beginning. I study Islamophobia, um, the way that was engaged, uh, and, and and the way I had to deal with that and manage that in terms of the State Department side was a little bit different uh, in one of those than in the other. In uh, in the uh, first part of my time there, a lot of my work was research on what U.S. embassies in Europe were doing to engage Muslim communities. What sort of programs were they initiating? Who were they partnering with in terms of governments, NGOs, and that sort of thing? Uh, and I had a particular lens to which I was doing this work. Uh, to what extent were engaging Muslim communities and programs for engaging Muslim communities primarily being driven by, again, countering violent extremism? And, um, and to what extent then could I give some recommendations or advice on other ways to engage Muslim communities that didn't have CVE or counterterrorism as the starting point? Uh, and I, and I, you know, there was a lot of material that I ended up gathering over a, a, a lot of uh, different regions of Europe. So it was very interesting for me to sort of see what the U.S. government via our embassies had been doing, some of it which was quite impressive. Some of it was moving in the right direction, some of which uh, was starting from a CVE uh, paradigm, and I uh, uh, was able to, to, to get the lay of the land in that regard, and that was a, a lot of my work. I also uh, gave feedback on speeches and memos and weighed in on, on various uh, documents circulating through the State Department that would have intersected in some way with anti-Muslim discrimination or racism in, in, uh, in Europe and maybe in some cases uh, elsewhere. Uh, after January or so, uh, my workload in some of the ways decreased. Uh, I, I don't think I was actually unique in the State Department in that regard. I'm, I'm not sure even right now that's unique um, uh, in terms of what was really a bustling sort of place after January. Uh, there was a lot of uh, rethinking, re re reorganizing that's still taking place if you follow the news about the State Department. But um, I actually had some interesting opportunities in that second half of my time at the State Department in the Trump administration that I would not have foreseen. And I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I did this. Um, in fact, I, I, if I can be just honest and blunt, uh, on the evening of November the 8th, uh, as the election results were co coming in and it seemed like the election was gonna go a certain way, I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I'm, I'm about to have the most ridiculous job in Washington, D.C., <laughs> an advisor on Islamophobia and the Trump administration. You can't make that up, right? And I, and I had some misgivings about, do I keep doing this? Do I reach out to Steve and AAR and say, can I do something else for the second half of my time? Is there maybe another um, think tank or another government organization? I, you know, I couldn't quite figure out if I should go forward with this. And, I, and it was a fleeting thought, or, or a fleeting thought for five days. <laughs> but, um, 
but but I uh, I am glad I I, uh, I stu stuck with it. I was there in an advisory capacity anyway. I didn't have any power. Um, I could give advice, and that advice could be ignored. And I really thought of it that way. Uh, but but better to be inside than outside. At, at that moment, I thought, particularly in that political transition. So I, I did stay, and some opportunities did arise that I was grateful for. Um, some of which had to do with uh, structural changes. Uh, when oftentimes, you know, when there's the inauguration of a new president, you have the political appointees resign either before or right around inauguration time. And in theory, the new Secretary of State makes new political appointees. That's also been in the media um, a good bit since uh, the Trump administration began, and there, a lot of that hasn't been made. So, in my bureau, uh, the acting Assistant Secretary of State um, took a lot of interest in my work. Uh, a little bit more so than it had, had been the case in the Obama administration, and maybe it was because of the political climate, but I ended up consulting with him, or he had me consult with him quite a bit uh, in the last five months or so of my time there, and particularly focused on language around terrorism and Islam, coming out of an election cycle where a lot of candidates had been using language like radical Islamic terrorism. And he wanted uh, me to help him brainstorm and think through ways to offer alternate language that when then he was briefing the Secretary of State, the new Secretary of State, maybe could nudge the Secretary of State in a, in a different direction than had been in the case certainly during the election cycle. And that was a very practical assignment I was given um, with, with some ambivalence I had about it as well. It was not actually, you know, what's, what's the alternate language you use about terrorism involving people with a Muslim background that doesn't come across as Islamophobic um, or mischaracterizing the nature of this form of violence, um, but could also be heard in the current political environment. That, that was actually an extraordinary task to try to figure out. Um, but I had that opportunity in a way that I would not have had otherwise. Um, and and uh, did other things in terms of analyzing the speeches of the President and the Secretary of State and the way they talked about Islam, and particularly the way they might have related Islam to violence that I could analyze and sort of give my take on that for others in the European Bureau. And I was, so I was doing a lot more of that kind of work uh, the second half of my time than the first half. And I also had the opportunity at the very end of my time in May to travel to some U.S. embassies, uh, particularly in Germany and Belgium, to speak to embassy staffs and personnel and other publics in Europe, including uh, young Muslims, uh, young uh, Muslim adults in Europe about Islamophobia. Ironically, they wanted me more often than not to speak about Islamophobia in America. So I go over there to Europe and they want me to talk about Islamophobia here in some very interesting political times, right? And so that, that in itself, uh, maybe I can talk about more later, but um, was a very interesting experience to, um, uh, to engage on Islamophobia and, and again, in a, in a particular presidential administration and doing that in my capacity as representing uh, the U.S. government. In terms of uh, challenges uh, from this work, uh, it took me a while to adjust to the State Department. The move from being a professor and, uh, on a liberal arts college campus to being a, a U.S. government employee was, was a little bit of a shock to my system. Um, uh, in terms of the way things were done, the way things were communicated, uh, echoing the, what Jerome said, in terms of you write a memo to someone you know, it's not, you don't just click send. Uh, sometimes I wish I could have just clicked send and it goes up to the person I want it to go to, but no, a lot of people have to jump in on this and vet it. And, um, you know, I found that uh, to take some adjusting. Um, and the challenges uh, I mentioned a while ago of trying to 
translate the work I did into language and discourses that could be heard and processed by the U.S. government and political appointees and, uh, and others in the State Department. Um, the, the main example I can give there is this language of radical Islamic terrorism. It actually was very difficult to find language I was comfortable with to suggest to uh, the European Bureau and the Acting Assistant Secretary of State um, that I thought also you know, could be heard. There, there are lots of ways I talk about it in my, my public scholarship, but, uh, but the Acting Assistant Secretary was warning, well, what will be heard by Secretary Tillerson? What can he process and potentially you know, start to incorporate into his own language as opposed to what do I just personally feel would be the better way to do this? And that's a different question to ask of me than I'm normally accustomed to being asked in terms of, of, of that. And it was a great exercise in many ways, but I did worry at times if, if in translating my public scholarship to this particular audience, um, if I was sacrificing something in the process, and, uh, and it, raised, yeah, it raised some moral concerns for me at, at certain times, and, and, uh, and I want to be open about that. Um, and I could mention some other things too, but, but I briefly want to touch on the opportunities that arose from this as well. Um, I, the collaborative writing, uh, I thought, was quite interesting after a while, once I got used to it, that there were 12 other people weighing in on everything you wrote. Um, but, you know, we as professors oftentimes are used to being siloed in our writing, and yeah, we have people weigh in and peer reviews and, and that sort of thing, uh, but this is a different kind of um, collaborative writing, I would say, that, you know, by the end of my time there, I was more accustomed to it, and, and I thought maybe there was something we as academics could learn uh, from, from that kind of writing, even though there's something that's lost in it as well. Sometimes what you start with and what ends up getting cleared is uh, are almost two different documents, but... Um, but, but the collaborative nature and having to negotiate and content sometimes I found to be uh, humbling and, and, and constructive. Uh, the, the opportunity to not just deconstruct problematic ways of in talking about Muslims or Islam, but offering possible solutions to this. You know, again, as a, as a scholar, I'm very trained and skilled in deconstructing things. But, but in the US government, you can't ever just stop there. You, you have to offer solutions or, or possibilities, and you will not gain much of an audience um, for long if you, if you don't turn the corner on that. And so having to constantly not just say this is the problem, but here are some ways forward is very good. I think more of us uh, as professors and scholars should be uh, pushed to do that with, with our work. Um, I ultimately saw my work as a, as a way of raising consciousness about Islamophobia, and, and in many ways to have this opportunity with this audience is very helpful. I, I, I tell my students all the time that one of the things I want them to get out of any course they take from me and, uh, is they expand their conversation partners, even if, if the texts they're reading are written by dead people, right? They expand their conversation partners, uh, and expanding their conversation partners, it really does help them get a better sense of who they are, what they, what they themselves believe, and also to learn uh, from others and grow in that, that sense. And I, uh, I saw my time in the State Department as expanding my conversation partners, uh, people I didn't have day-to-day -day contact with, who did look at the world a little bit differently than I have been trained to look at the world. Um, and uh, that to me was a tremendous um, opportunity, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and my final remark, question I, I sort of leave to really everyone up here is, um, and thinking about this kind of work of bridging the gap between the study of religion and policy making is to the extent that you've done this work, doesn't matter. 
the, the, the classic so what question of academia, right? But I, I think that question applies here. Did, did, it, did it make a difference? Do you feel you made a difference? I, I'm still asking myself that question uh, today, and I, and I wonder if my answer five years from now might be a little bit different than it is just a, you know, six months or so from this experience. But, but I am curious to, as to what others up here have to, have to say about the so what question. Thank you. Thank you. Elizabeth? Um, thank you as well. I echo the sentiments of my previous panelists, thanking uh, the uh, fellow panelists, our chair, and also the Luce Foundation, although I'm um, not one of the um, individuals who went through the, the, uh, the Luce program that we're just, we've been discussing. Uh, we do thank the Luce Foundation at the Fletcher School. They are supporting a, a religious literacy initiative as part of our broader religion law and diplomacy initiative. So I'm very, um, I'm, I'm happy to thank them for recognizing that in a place like the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is where I teach at Tufts University, there's a real um, value for our students and also for our faculty in thinking about the, the connections between uh, religion and international relations, both on the theory side, but also the practice side. Um, I'm a political scientist by training, and uh, I come to religion uh, in terms of uh, the, the issues and the, the regions on which I work. Um, I'm trained as a comparativist, uh, and I think um, that's uh, and a kind of uh, hybridist, uh, and by that I simply mean someone who has always been interested in interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary work when it comes to studying religion from the disciplinary space of political science. Uh, maybe that's due to my master's training at the Fletcher School, and also then to the uh, doctoral work at MIT, where although in political science uh, I wrote a dissertation on uh, church-state relations uh, in the 1980s in Greece and the way in which uh, religion affected the democratization process there. And MIT was perhaps counterintuitively a very hospitable environment for doing that kind of cross-disciplinary work. Um, I'm especially interested in um, issues of uh, religion, security, and democracy, and more specifically, uh, the ways in which uh, the origins, the sustainability, the durability of religious pluralism in various regions of the world contributes to democracy building uh, and also contributes to stability and different kinds of security. Um, I work primarily on, depending on how you think about history, uh, the post-Byzantine or post-Ottoman spaces, which means that I work mainly on uh, the Near East and uh, Southeastern Europe. So. There's a lot of uh, fruitful kind of possibility for the, the work, the theoretical issues I'm interested in. I'm currently doing, uh, working on two, pol uh, two uh, projects. One is a, a project on migration, religion, and security in Europe and Eurasia, and in particular looking at how human mobility flows um, uh, from uh, Eurasia into Europe or from uh, the Middle East into Europe are reshaping the way in which uh, policymakers think about the relationship between um, religion and security. And the second is looking at a, a project on what I call uh, geopolitics and orthodoxy, and orthodox geopolitics. And I'm very interested in uh, the way in which um, classical geopolitics and critical geopolitics uh, is shaping the way in which uh, the global orthodox church 
uh, engages in uh, international relations and also practices geopolitics internally in terms of its own, I would say, ecclesiastical um, politics. So that's what, that's what I'm currently working on. I, I served, um, in terms of how I come to this panel, I served from 2004 to 2012 on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And I, so I served two, four two-year terms. Um, that commission uh, is an independent U.S. government agency, and it was uh, formed in 1998. It was established in 1998 with the um, passage of the International Religious Freedom Act, probably the last unanimous uh, thing that both houses of uh, Congress have done in our uh, recent history. Um, that agency was created along with the IRF office, the International Religious Freedom Office at the State Department, as well as uh, a position in the, on the National Security Council for an expert on religious freedom. Interestingly enough, since uh, the passage of the IRF legislation in 1998, that NSC position has yet to be filled. Um, but So I served from 2004 to 2012, which meant um, I uh, served under two different administrations, and it was quite fascinating to see both the elements of difference, but also the elements of continuity uh, between two administrations, uh, the Bush 43 and Obama administrations that on the face of it um, had very different approaches to thinking about uh, I think religion in the world and also religion in U.S. foreign policy and the promotion and protection of religious freedom, but in terms of their actual policy, uh, they were um, very interesting uh, and not always from my perspective as either an academic or a policymaker, very interesting elements of continuity. Um, and uh, I also served from 2011 to 2015 in an advisory capacity on the Secretary of State's working group on religion and U.S. foreign policy, and that was established by Secretary Clinton and continued under Secretary Kerry. So that's the, um, the framework in which, in terms of public service and pol public policy and international policy experience, I had the opportunity to really um, get a bird's eye view of the way in which our foreign policy establishment thinks about um, how religion matters, and more specifically, how religious freedom matters. Uh, I would say that um, in terms of the policy establishment, some, some takeaways for me, and this became clear even as I, I entered, you know, began my service uh, on the USERF, I, I think uh, it was very interesting to watch the ways in which the things that we talk about, epistemic frameworks and you know models of uh, modernity, models of secularization, how those were quite actively at work and I think remain quite actively at work um, in the policy establishment. Sometimes in, a, um, in, an, uh, in an examined way, but more often than not, I would say in terms of very deep, unexamined, but um, uh, quite active assumptions uh, that uh, began to be, at least in terms of the work that I did on the USERF, rendered far more explicit. And I would say most specifically, um, this came to questions on uh, the way in which uh, language like uh, secular and modern gets used in the foreign policy establishment. Um, 
ideas about the way in which, the long-standing, I think, views about the way in which secular is a good thing. Secular always means uh, greater degrees of democracy. Secularity and democracy are always go hand in hand. And one of the things that became quite uh, clear early on in my, my tenure on the commission was uh, the need to unpack that assumption. Uh, and, and it was quite, I think, counterintuitive for some of the people that uh, I served with, but more generally, I would say, in the foreign policy establishment. And seeing the way in which um, the language of the academy and the language of social science and political science research um, is, is used really as the kind of lingua franca for a lot of the policy discussions was quite, was quite interesting. And um, I think in terms of the work at the, um, in the RGA office and also in the, uh, the International Religious Freedom Office, uh, the, the recognition there and the kinds of work that you all do, the recognition there that um, in fact, um, it is important to kind of unpack those, those assumptions because they have long had, I think, very uh, strong uh, effects on our foreign policy. Um, that was one of the, the ways that I immediately saw the sort of the porousness of the boundaries between um, the academic space and the, and the policy space. Uh, another area in which I saw that as well was um, in terms of discussions about um, security, uh, looking in particular at the ways in which um, stable or unstable security environments affect uh, the protection and uh, the durability of religious freedom regimes, and vice versa, looking at the way in which strong religious freedom regimes help to create stable security environments, recognizing that there's a kind of reflexivity at work. That was something that, again, um, in terms of the policy space, began to be a central part of um, our conversations on, on the, the USERF. Also recognizing uh, the, the work that we did, which involved a lot of travel, international travel, to investigate um, empirical and also alleged violations of religious freedom, uh, beginning to, to, to see that when we speak about security, although I would say um, there's been a, a tendency, and uh, unfortunately I think that's been intensified at least um, in the first what are we, 10 months into this new administration, the, ten, the uh, tendency to think about security um, in terms of violence, in terms of terrorism, and certainly in terms of um, the language about um, Islamist terrorism. Um, the flip side of that uh, was a recognition by looking at religious freedom regimes, um, recognizing that there are very different kinds of security, types of security, but they're all inter interrelated. Um, there are you know, the ways in which state protect their borders. Uh, then there are non-traditional security threats, some of which we, we've been discussing, but also the issue of human security. And one of the things that I think became very apparent in terms of the service on the commission was the recognition that human security um, and international religious freedom are um, intrinsically related, freedom from want, violence, and fear. Uh, yet another um, kind of observation in terms of the, the linkages between the academic space and the, the policy space that, um, that I experienced and observed was the, um, the real need for um, what I mentioned earlier in thanking Luce, the need for uh, improved religious literacy. And by that, I, I would say simply um, on the foreign policy side, a much better and more systematic way, systematic training for our, for our foreign service officers, but also for our senior policymakers um, in thinking about 
what is religion? Um, how do we understand um, religious ideas, religious institutions, organizations, actors, uh, the importance in particular of religious leadership um, and who interprets and monopolizes the interpretation over religious message. Um, and then um, finally, thinking as a comparativist, basic training on um, what we could call comparative religions uh, to move away from the kind of uh, essentializing language that I, I would say, unfortunately, continues to um, be a challenge when we think about religion and, and foreign policy, um, but uh, relates very much to the, the areas and the regions in which I do most of my academic research. And I think in particular, um, when we talk about um, the Middle East, the, the kind of default language of the Middle East as the Muslim Middle East, the Arab Middle East. Uh, the Middle East is a space, a regional space that's been, you know, um, you know, continuously affected for the last 70 years by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, that kind of language tends to occlude and um, largely miss the um, very important, I think, um, religious uh, pluralism that has long characterized the region and the causes for the ebb and flow and more recently, I would say, um, re well, really for the last 100 years since the formation of states in the region, the, um, the homogenization of what was a religiously plural space, um, the, uh, the causes for that very much, um, I think, uh, shape the way in which we think about uh, the policy choices that can both build robust religious freedom regimes, but also encourage stable security environments. And I noticed, again, this issue of language come up repeatedly in terms of um, the work that we did, um, both in terms of the on-the-ground um, investigation that we did, but also in terms of the, the mandate for the commission, which was to report to the Congress, the Secretary of State, and the White House on religious freedom violations around the world, and then to make these uh, legal designations of countries of particular concern, which are countries of, uh, that commit systematic and egregious violations of religious freedom. So to sort of sum that up, I, 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 the, lang the issue of vocabulary, language, nomenclature, and the underlying assumptions associated with that language that we really do, we have seen go through, I would say, a kind of you know, minor or maybe major revolution in the academy over the last 20 years. I saw the um, belatedness of um, the change or the, the critical approach to the use of that language in, in the policy space, but nonetheless a kind of openness to explore that um, once, you know, sort of put on the table. Um, let's see, in terms of um, what, what this experience, I think, brings to both my academic research but also my life in the classroom, I, I, I would say that uh, that the service really has enriched and made me a better um, academic in the classroom. Uh, it really allows me to sort of um, demonstrate through example uh, the ways in which the, the knowledge regimes that we use in political science when it comes to religion really are active. They're very present in, um, in policy making. Uh, and so, you know, the, you know, the, endless amounts of, of research on secularization theory, the critical reevaluation of secularization theory in the academy, that you know, really is uh, a part of the foreign policy establishment. And so to be able to sort of demonstrate that to students, I think is, is very useful. And frankly, also the, the ability to bring in experts 
um, who work on the kinds of issues that I might teach about in a course on geopolitics, religion, and security in Eurasia, or democratization in the Middle East, that makes a big difference for students to be able to access experts who are actually you know, um, doing this in the, in the policy space. Um, a couple of other just uh, general observations. Uh, I think that um, although, you know, from the, the policy side, um, going as an academic onto the commission, that commission is comprised of uh, nine private citizens. Uh, they are appointed by members of the Senate, uh, the House, and the White House. Um, they run the gamut from faith practitioners to uh, attorneys with expertise in international law or uh, religious freedom law, and also um, uh, include um, uh, individuals from the NGO world. There are there's a, uh, you know also a smattering of academics who have cycled through the commission. Coming onto that commission as an academic, um, I. I uh, felt a sense of skepticism from um, you know fellow commissioners about can you get sort of transform your egghead as an academic into you know a, a policymaker um, and oftentimes a, a sense that um, my observations or comments were uh, I would hear people say they're too theoretical uh, but there was nonetheless a willingness to sort of you know, engage on whether or not, you know, these are abstractions, again, issues of essentializing language, uh, issues of how we uh, use terms. Um, so um, the flip side of that is how fellow academics uh, perceive and think about the work in, um, in public service and in the policy environment. And I would say that um, there's an equally healthy skepticism, if not even a greater um, intractability when it comes to thinking that um, service in the policy space and in the diplomatic space is actually useful um, as a scholar. I would say um, there's still a kind of, um, or there's a kind of chronic question mark about whether or not uh, service in the policy world makes you, um, you know, a, a better and more robust academic or somehow has contaminated you by virtue of participation in, um, in the, the policy space. Um, and likewise, um, coming back to the academy out of the, the experiences uh, on the commission on, and uh, the Secretary of State's working groups, I would also say that um, there is, although we speak a lot in the academy about cross-disciplinary research, um, I would say that there still is a very, very urgent need for more systematic and greater collaboration, in particular between um, departments of political science or schools of international public policy on the one hand, and departments of religion, and also um, uh, seminaries and vocational spaces and uh, religious educational spaces that train faith-based leaders. Um, there's still a kind of silo effect, I would say, at work in the academy, notwithstanding uh, you know, greater um, evidence of, of cross-disciplinary research. Um, so I, I, I guess one fi two final comments. One is um, the importance of um, 
Well, the, the importance, again, of encouraging students who have a commitment to um, robust academic research and scholarship to also think about the possibility of public service and the work that they can do in the policy space. Uh, that you know there are multiple tracks, um, and choosing one doesn't necessarily uh, close off the other, uh, because I think students oftentimes feel that uh, whether it's for a master's or a PhD, they're forced to make a choice of either an academic trajectory or a policy trajectory. And I think it's very important, and all of us can probably attest to that, to encourage them to think that um, it's possible to do both. And then finally, the other is a more kind of, I would say, um, personal contemporary observation. Um, and that is, uh, again, the ways in which my own training as a comparativist who also works on international relations um, and the, uh, works on religion and geopolitics and security, uh, the way in which um, our own politics, domestic politics in the United States, um, you know, if we think about the fields in, um, in political science, the subdivisions of political science of IR, comparative American politics, et cetera, one of the things that I observed is that um, a lot of what we think goes on out there when it comes to uh, religious freedom and security, uh, when it comes to the intersection between religion, democracy, and security, um, a lot of what we think goes on out there, we see more and more in terms of our own politics and our own institutions of governance. And by that, I would say that in the worst cases of violations of religious freedom around the world, um, we see great evidence of essentializing language, um, othering of um, either uh, other religious communities or um, denominations within religious communities. We see polarization of politics and unwillingness to uh, negotiate. Um, and unfortunately, I would say that a lot of what we think is not part of the American political reality and social reality we're now seeing um, you know, uh, quite sharply in terms of our country. And I would suggest that um, that's not simply um, an expression of where we are right now, but these have been long trends that um, we haven't really been willing to examine. And working in, the, in a kind of dialogical and cooperative manner with different US government agencies while on the commission, um, engaging with Congress, it was very obvious that a lot of those features that I think we are now very concerned with in terms of American politics and society that we oftentimes associated with the international arena are evident for us. And I think the, the connections between religion and, and politics really throw that into sharp relief. And so I wouldn't necessarily have been able, I think, to think about that as, um, you know, as clearly from my own perspective had I not served on the commission. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Robert. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Rob Albro. I'm a, an academic uh, social scientist trained in uh, sociocultural anthropology. Um, I'm a bit of an outlier on, on the panel, uh, but I think it will become clear how I might fit in. Um, not having had a significant professional time in and around some uh, corner or bureau of the Department of State. But uh, what I want to do is offer a complementary case from the discipline of anthropology, um, primarily in, in terms of my own um, engagement through the uh, Professional Association of Anthropologists, the American Anthropological Association, 
as it was trying to come to terms with um, increased um, engagement from uh, military security um, diplomacy entities in the US government um, at a moment when uh, anthropology was increasingly seen as a kind of an asset um, from that direction uh, in the uh, mid-2000s and uh, forward in the ongoing global war on terror and in the context of ongoing then ongoing wars in uh, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Um, so I'll just quickly tell that story and then I will happily um, uh, uh, amplify as uh, people have any interest in hearing more. Um, in 2005-07, when I was serving as the chair of the uh, AAA's uh, Committee for Human Rights, I was asked to uh, participate in a commission on anthropology's engagement with U.S. security and intelligence communities, and eventually ended up chairing that commission. Um, at a moment where, to put it mildly, there was significant controversy uh, among the membership of the AAA around um, whether or not and under what circumstances it might be possible for um, specific anthropologists to work in any kind of capacity uh, with or on questions of relevance to um, the U.S. government um, as it was prosecuting those wars. Um, the uh, discipline of anthropology, I should say, has had a long history of deep ambivalence with uh, working with um, the US national security state. And this was just one, I would say, kind of particularly punctuated moment in that longer historical arc. Um, in, in the mid 2000s, there were an array of uh, programs and uh, uh, goals that the uh, that military security, intelligence, and diplomacy assets had uh, that made anthropology suddenly interesting um, the two obvious and primary ones being its peculiar methodology of participant observation ethnography and then its focus on some kind of cultural expertise. Um, from the point of view of uh, DOD, for example, anthropology was understood to be you know, a cultural science, the science that understood how to help us understand cultural questions better. Um, and this was all happening when uh, there was a broad shift in the strategic uh, footing around those conflicts and uh, a new doctrinal emphasis on counterinsurgency, which is a kind of culture-centric war fighting, one might say, where the uh, focus is on um, engaging with uh, civilian noncombatants and you know, we, winning hearts and minds and so forth and so on. Uh, and so uh, there were a variety of different moving parts across this vast array of um, agencies and organizations and entities. And so I'll just mention a few to give you a sense of the uh, uh, landscape. Some of these were curricular in nature, uh, focusing on ways in which training and education capacity could be improved around questions of cultural competence. Some of these were uh, operational in nature. Uh, some of you have probably heard about uh, the human terrain uh, system program, which was um, a program stood up in 2005 to embed anthropological expertise in frontline um, combat units in both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And that became a kind of a touchstone for debate, sometimes quite sharp, um, in the discipline around what was anthropology doing in this regard and what did it mean for anthropologists to be present in these, in these arrangements. Uh, 
research capacity building. Um, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, for example, organized something called the Minerva Initiative, which provided funding for very kind of anthropological type uh, projects and other kinds of things. Uh, and uh, many more in different kinds of um, forms of engagements and activity. Um, the commission that I eventually chaired was really just an effort by the AAA to uh, get up to speed on, on these diverse developments and on the um, invitations that were at that time being extended to the discipline as a whole and to specific anthropologists to cooperate or collaborate with uh, counterparts in government around these questions. And at the same time, so in other words, both to describe what these were to uh, a group of folks, uh, professional anthropologists who for uh, several generations had not had much truck with um, this part of government broadly conceived, at least since the Vietnam era, which was an equally contentious period, not surprisingly, and who had very little idea of what was being asked of them or what was involved or what was happening on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, a strong uh, concern and sense of, uh, well, and set of uh, internal critiques by groups of anthropologists around the appropriateness of disciplinary uh, involvement, the uses of uh, methodologies like ethnography, and the applications of um, uh, anthropological knowledge production, uh, both in its generic sense of some idea of the acquisition of cultural expertise, but also a kind of a deeper understanding of, on the part of DOD, uh, DOS, and other entities about the cultures and religions of the Middle East. Um, so very quickly, what did we do as a commission? We, we existed for some years, um, and we were basically a kind of uh, uh, group of folks, some from uh, applied worlds of anthropology, some from academic worlds of anthropology, some with a foot in some of these uh, agencies and organizations, some um, completely outside them, um, trying to um, articulate um, an agenda for the association and to make some constructive suggestions about what the association should be thinking about and might uh, consider uh, uh, moving forward in uh, saying something more substantive around uh, sort of policy, if you will, for um, anthropologists. Um, so we generated a series of blog posts. We uh, routinely published in the um, monthly anthropology uh, news. We uh, uh, held numerous public forums, sometimes within these spaces, sometimes outside of them, sometimes on university campuses, sometimes not. Uh, we eventually produced two comprehensive reports for the AAA on um, ethical considerations around these forms of engagement, which was the first report published in 2007, and then specifically in 2009 on um, the human terrain system and whether or not it, it was an appropriate um, activity for anthropologists or could even be called uh, anthropology. In that latter case, um, the report uh, concluded that no, it, it couldn't but also uh, described in, in detail what, what the set of issues were that it seemed to us uh, were entailed in, in a discussion about why that was uh, perhaps inappropriate for a professional anthropologist. Um, so I'll mention just a few of some of the key issues that were raised by uh, members and uh, in our work together on the commission and subsequently. 
um, there were an array of critical issues, primarily phrased in terms of ethical concerns uh, uh, and uh, in debates about um, anthropology's engagement with the national security state. And these included inter alia, no particular order, um, the professional ethical injunction to do no harm, what that means in a conflict zone, um, the question of transparency versus secrecy, um, of data, but also of uh, research agendas. Um, this includes obvious problems around um, uh, working in uh, or with classified environments and uh, questions of methods and sources and uh, to what extent one can um, be transparent and whether or not it's inherently problematic to engage in, in non-transparent forms of, uh, of research or knowledge production. Um, the, the problem of compartmentalization, I'm, I would like to go back to that later if you're interested because I, I see that as a particularly interesting issue, by which I mean when you work in these kinds of settings, um, it's often the case that the specific tasks that you might be given are not themselves complete or um, the entire task. You might just be working on some part of a larger agenda, but you might not be altogether aware of what that agenda is. So what does it mean to perform specific activities for some broader goal of which you might not be fully apprised? Um, the uh, difficulties of things like obtaining informed consent, um, if what you're doing is um, a research type activity in an environment like a conflict zone that is, uh, some might argue, inherently coercive and therefore you know, it's impossible to obtain informed consent. Um, and a little less obviously perhaps, and it's, it's been touched on by some of my uh, colleagues um, in their work at, at State, uh, engagement with uh, often uh, well-intentioned uh, counterparts in and across various of these agencies where they're asking for your participation in and help or expertise in understanding better um, how to deal with questions of, say, religious identity in operational terms, uh, where that is from the outset framed perhaps as an assumption, as some kind of problem to be solved. And what does it mean when you, know, you start with this idea of this being a, a Islam as some sort of problem you have to solve? Um, these were all on the table, and there were many more issues. Um, I'm moving very rapidly through what was a rather complicated set of discussions. Um, just to kind of finish, um, I'm, I'm offering that example as kind of one institutional case of the way that Professional Social Science Association was brought into and engaged with the national security state, including the Department of State, but not only, and what that's meant for me. So uh, I've been in the Washington, D.C. area since, I mean, I grew up in that area, but since uh, 2002. And I can't. Uh, I, I should underscore that that it's rather it's been rather important to have been in D.C. for this role and uh, ro the, the way in which those activities have uh, sort of subsequently shaped an ongoing role that I've played from time to time, sometimes more frequently, sometimes not, as a kind of mediator, broker, go-to person that people know who can sometimes. Um, I'm asked by counterparts in government to represent anthropology or represent the issues of anthropology around these questions, a, a, a goal or a hat I tend to try to resist. Um, 
uh, sometimes to uh, facilitate, um, I think, as, as you were just talking about, some uh, greater forms of dialogue and exchange in uh, certain cases among agencies and organizations and professional social science associations where it would seem that that dialogue might be uh, helpful and, and uh, productive. Just to give you one really quick example of that, um, you know, a couple of years ago, with the high point being you know, late 2014, uh, 2015, you know, there was a series of um, destruction of uh, cultural heritage uh, sites by, uh, um, you know, in Syria and Iraq, uh, places like Nimrud and, and elsewhere. And it was uh, not clear from within the uh, military context how to respond to these concerns. And this was a long, an ongoing problem that had at least it's an, it came on their radar originally with the uh, uh, looting of the Baghdad Museum in uh, 2003. And subsequently, the, the military has in different ways attempted to stand up resources to deal internally with this issue. But to do so, they, they need to understand fully kind of what's at issue around the, the meaning or significance of some of these cultural heritage sites. Um, and it might range from things like uh, lists of places not to bomb to uh, you know, ways of securing sacred sites uh, to ways of engaging with key counterparts um, in parts of the world who might be uh, managing those sites and, and a variety of other issues. And this was a, a kind of a conversation that it seemed to me made sense to have uh, with uh, military colleagues um, in a way that was quite different from other kinds of things that people might be asked to do, like uh, human terrain or something like that. Um, and so we had a, a meeting at the Smithsonian that involved a lot of um, those folks, key stakeholders, around thinking up um, better ways to coordinate action um, toward the goal of, uh, sort of conservation or preservation of cultural heritage sites. Um, this is one small thing that I was brought into and asked to help facilitate. Uh, so you know, that's something that's continued uh, periodically um, whether it's for you know sitting on a committee for the uh, National Research Council or working with the American Association for the of uh, um, uh, 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 the American Academy of Sciences, the uh, Office of Naval Research, uh, the uh, Department of State's Bureau of Educational and uh, Cultural Affairs, um, some of the national laboratories. Um, there's a wide range of different kinds of problems around this issue, in which I've now become some sort of expert that people frequently seek me out around of uh, how do we use this issue of culture um, or incorporate cultural knowledge as a kind of problem-solving tool into what we are already doing. Uh, and sometimes those are successful exercises or conversations or engagements or dialogues, but I'm often as not reminded of the uh, lim limitations of these exchanges. And I'd be happy to talk more about what I take to be some of those limitations and I'll uh, just stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to to first say thank you for, to all of you. I'm just so struck by how much time and energy you have given to a project that you value as citizens. And uh, you're not paid extra money to meet with someone and try to talk with them about the complexity of these ideas. So you really put yourself in a place of 
giving to a project that really had integrity for you and probably is under-recognized. So thanks for your work. Um, we have, yes. Um, I want to um, have some questions and conversations from the audience. Um, before we do that, I'm just gonna do a little read through of some of the major themes, briefly, that I heard. Um, I heard themes of, um, of morality and ethics. Um, on the one hand, more knowledge, more nuance seems to be always a good, more religious literacy. On the other hand, we heard from Rob that we're not necessarily innocent when we participate in providing um, insight and information, and, and sometimes there are not ways that we can have transparent access to where our contribution is used. Um, so I'm curious to talk a little bit more about ethics and morality. Uh, the, the very uh, poignant question of does it matter, um, both the question of does it matter given the incoming Trump administration and it's sort of a racer of a lot of competency and then also the larger question of uh, does it matter or does are, are, um, is it just perhaps a satisfying career or perhaps not and we opt in or out based on personal preference. Um, I'm interested in our thinking together about what would we tell Luce AAR about a next generation version of this, um, both as an output, what might be an audience, who would care, who would want to know, what would we want to say to them, um, not just as a series of academic reports, but maybe as a meta-analysis, because you've had a unique um, perspective on history. Um, the, the ways in which this was um, sometimes unsatisfying, like you said at the end, Rob, these sort of one-off encounters. And is that the name of the game? Like, bureaucracies are massive, and it's an educating is a slow process in the classroom and in civil society. Um, and I liked uh, the ways in which you each seemed to suggest that moving in and out of the classroom, light was a moment of illumination for you on what you had learned from a different kind of genre of thinking. That f you learned what you had um, communicated in different terms in your memo had things to say about how you educated your students and how you educated your students had things that informed the ways you talked to your colleagues. Um, so those are areas I encourage us to come back to. Um, anyone in the audience want to speak? I wanted to introduce um, Peter Kovach, um, who's been in touch with us about his own work on religion in the State Department. And I see that the great Sean Casey is also here. Sean. Peter, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your history? Um, just take a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, hello. Can you hear me? Uh, my perspective is kind of coming from an opposite direction, but agreeing with almost everything that's been said. Uh, I'm a recovering religion major, world religion major. Spent my junior year at Benares Hindu University. Uh, at first round of grad school was area studies, but again, I got very involved in the anthropology of religion and increasingly decided that that being sort of a practical and engaging personality, that was my route. And I think it's the route that is more applicable to uh, engagement with religious leaders, civil society, and values, I would add, in the service of secular foreign policy goals. Uh, I really subscribe to Rob's concerns about the instrumentalization, but at the same time, once you go into government, you know, you're, you're sort of aboard with that. And, you know, you can jump off the train, 
but it's 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 a dilemma. It's there. It's there very actively in the mind. Uh, in the one of the, the great things that RGA, uh, the, the structure that was stood up under Secretary Kerry and that uh, Dr. Casey headed, uh, accomplished was uh, really pushing ahead the piece of training and socializing the need to engage religious civil society along with other elements in the uh, societies we, in, we serve in. Um, What's the, what prevents it? Obviously, I, I would say two things. Uh, one is that we're excessively rationalist in bureaucracies, even in non-democratic societies. Evidence-based, you know, we're, we're tough thinkers. If we have a strong spiritual background, we leave it in a little box by the door of the bureaucracy as we walk in. Uh, that's a bit of a problem. Uh, one of the things I've found in a career, a 30-year foreign service career, of engaging religious society is that I need to bring my own identity to the table uh, tactically. Um, the second thing, of course, is fear of the First Amendment, of that you'll overstep the bounds that someone, you know, to stereotype a bit in, either on the Christian right or uh, the Madeleine Murray atheist uh, element will, will go after you in court. Um, I saw, I, I mean, early on in my career, two, two quick examples. One is uh, I was in Yemen and I was a little bit appalled at how my more experienced colleagues were engaging almost exclusively Yemenis that had been educated in the States, London, the Soviet Union, or Iraq. Um, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. I didn't go through you know, a year and a half of Arabic for this. Uh, so I went out and engaged both Muslim brotherhoods, the, the Sunni and the, the Zaidi, uh, and eventually started placing some of our Arabic materials about America in their journals. We could not get our foot in the door in this fairly illiterate society of radio and television, which were the key media. Well, what happened was when these articles started appearing, the very secular minister of information called little junior me and said, Peter, why can't we have equivalent TV and radio materials? And I said, Excellency, because I can't get my foot in the door of your radio and TV stations, which were very controlled by secular Baathists. Uh, and it was the Reagan administration where we were perceived to be so absolutely pro-Israel that they, they just didn't want to talk to us. That changed. And we, uh, I, I got a grant from Washington and bought a lot of materials and placed them. Really changed our whole media profile in Yemen. In Bahrain, uh, later on, uh, after the Iranian Revolution, uh, the Shia community, the majority Shia community, was very wary of us. But they were wary of us because they felt that we were lumping them with Iran at the time. Uh, that uh, they admired the United States. We integrated the oil company, which was segregated like the old Deep South different bathrooms, different water fountains, different eateries. Uh, the first day American management took over, we integrated it. They never forgot that. And they valued uh, our getting rid of a corrupt leader, uh, and that was water, the Watergate. So they, they had their narrative of justice and uh, around that. We, they, we had no contact as an embassy, so I noticed they were very big on sports clubs, so I brought a, a college basketball team out to scrimmage and coach and so forth. Uh, I brought a, a Division Three brainy school team out uh, where the kids would understand what they were there for uh, and that would legitimately lose a game or two to the clubs. 
uh, they did, and it was bathed in publicity on TV and radio. And uh, the embassy, and, and also our military base there, which was a not-so-secret presence, uh, began to come down to the village uh, uh, majlises uh, for weddings, funerals, and so forth, which is how I got into this. I started going down on my own. So these, okay. these tactics were yeah. ways of engaging yeah. religion on the ground. Yeah, yeah. I, and that, uh, this, was, this was in the 80s. Yeah. In the 90s, when I came back to Washington, we were fretting about political Islam after the first Gulf War, mm -hmm. uh, the 1991 Gulf War. And I remember these anguished seminars of academic experts, uh, some of your professors maybe, who came and advised us. And I just suddenly decided that my habit of engagement needed to be put into policy. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a paper and it got you know, cleared and so forth and went up to Ed Jurigian, who was our assistant secretary in the Near East Bureau, and he gave a speech at Meridian House in Washington, I think on June 2nd, 1992, that I had essentially written and it basically enjoined us to reach out, uh, reach out to people that would talk to us, mm -hmm. uh, to be careful around people that were for one man, one vote, one time, but realize that in a way that the, the Muslim Brotherhood in its very various anthropological forms in different countries was almost the only civil society we had to interact with. And, and that, that doctrine kind of held until 9-11 when it was suddenly the silent majority. Okay, uh, 98, the Religious Freedom Act was very, very big. Uh, uh, it created a obligation of every embassy in the world to write this report. Um, after 2001, it, it, the engagement became much too Islamocentric. Um, I, in my last job in my career, headed the Religious Freedom Office at a time there was no RGA, there was no ambassador at large at the moment. Uh, so I did all those roles, and I really, uh, I extracted, uh, as kind of not a bribe for taking the job, but I extracted grant money to program religious civil society in conflict zones to, to work to overcome conflict, especially interfaith. Um, I, I really believe in that. And then what was amazing is under the, uh, the George Bush 43 administration, they started these structures of uh, faith-based and neighborhood outreach uh, offices in various bureaucracies. And that was actually started before 9-11. Um, that was a very positive development. It went a little too far domestically, as some of you may remember. But it, uh, it kind of gave us a, an engagement structure. And then some key regulations were rewritten that enabled us overseas to engage religious civil society when appropriate as program partners, not just interlocutors. Okay, that was very important. Uh, it, it let the uh, civil society organizations compete on a level playing field with secular organizations for right. grants. Mm -hmm. It uh, allowed us to, if they got a grant, they had to separate the activity that was funded in either time or place from a, from a worship activity. That's very key. They had to include people that did not worship in their congregation uh, if they were in the purview of the grant. Um, and and if, if, if we were gonna build a structure, we would only pay for it uh, in the percentage it was to be used for the grant activity. You know, suddenly, First Amendment-itis, as I call it, receded because there was a structure of regulation and you knew you were protected. Peter, I think you've got a book okay. in you. Okay. I, I think you've got a book proposal. 
you, you could definitely contribute to the history of this institution. There's a there's a lot of change that you've you've lived through it's and you've just, been part of. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, do you have any and, do and a, RGA? But RGA did such important work. They they established the need for social mapping of the religious civil society terrain in all the places we work. They uh, pushed the training piece, and I absolutely agree with Evan that. Uh, you, that it should be basically anthropological training, how the tradition has lived, how it's cumulatively and progressively been interpreted. But at the same time, you have to give people in this very secular institution some sense of the essentials. But it, it's got to be in an anthropological context, I would say. Um, I hope that continues. Um, I hope that uh, I hope that some of the work that, that was started, and all of it, mm -hmm. continues and, and, and get gets uh, richer. Uh, I'll stop here, but I'll, I'd be very interested in talking to all of you and any of you that are interested later. Well, thank, thank you. you also for your service. And thank you for well, thank you to RGA and and what they accomplished. It, it really was a jewel in a crown, but one that I see as almost a 40-year progression. Thanks, Peter. So. Uh, I wanted to jump in on some of the questions about normativity and ethics that have uh, sort of cropped up in the course of the conversation and think a little bit about uh, sort of how we're locating that question across a couple of different spaces. So one thing I take to heart in Peter's comments is the ways in which uh, civil servants and foreign service officers have long struggled with issues of sort of how to incorporate religious knowledge and information into uh, governance, right? That there's a sort of one perspective on this issue that has to do with bringing on board uh, religious knowledge and understanding and engagement into a uh, uh, quote-unquote secular federal context. Uh, another way to think about how we locate that, that, that question across a set of actors is to think about the relationship between academic knowledge production and uh, government service, right? And I think that Rob's remarks were really helpful in framing uh, that in the context of a very particular, um, somewhat contentious uh, set of developments in anthropology and a set of programs in which um, anthropologists were not necessarily of one mind about uh, military-funded uh, utilization of their work. Uh, I also, I, I think that when we switch the con switch the the conversation to one about the relationship between religious studies as a discipline, as a body of knowledge and scholarship and relationship to government service, uh, we have a sort of unique set of questions. And so here, we're essentially asking about uh, the relationship between theory and practice, between uh, knowledge and advocacy, uh, between uh, deconstruction and construction. You can frame this in a variety of different ways. And I think that one thing that we might want to submit for sort of collective consideration is the particular vexed relationship that those categories have in the study of religion, in large part stemming from the tensions between religious studies and theology as two sort of uh, dyadic uh, partners in a, in a long-standing disciplinary enterprise, right? So I think one of the issues that we often find is that um, scholars of religion uh, are, are See, and this is based on personal experience, this is based on a panel we had uh, last night, this is based on uh, conversations I've had with folks about the, this, this fellowship last year. Um, really, that folks in religious studies are, are reticent to 
think of what they do as uh, advocacy-based, as uh, having uh, sort of coherent pathways to application in the public sphere? And uh, I think that's an interesting question. I, I think so part of that skepticism, to my mind, rises because of the ways in which religious studies understand itself as a, um, we, you know, we teach about religion, we don't teach religion, right? There's something, I think, inherent in that formulation of who we are as a field that has sort of um, uh, a set of self-imposed limitations about sort of what does and does not count as quality scholarship in the field. Um, I'd like to submit that, that self-understanding to a little bit of um, critical scrutiny, right? I mean, you don't hear people using the construction applied religious studies. Um, you hear people using the, the construction, the public understanding of religion, and it's it's clear that um, people mean different things by that, right? So how, who are our publics? What are the modes of public engagement? Are certain modes of public engagement of religious studies scholarship somehow more or less valuable, more or less ethically fraught? And I, I think one of the, the critical pieces to this for me, um, and I think Rob was pointing very directly to this issue, is that uh, when our work is harnessed to sort of public objectives Objectives or uh, advocacy issues that go beyond, or, or uh, governance issues that go beyond sort of the normal, the normal sphere of academic work, uh, we we get squeamish uh, as if that is somehow, and I think um, Elizabeth used this word, uh, contamination of something that is actually our enterprise, right? And that, to me, uh, hinges on the presupposition that our work was somehow not contaminated to begin with, right? That, that exists in a laboratory in which we, you know our, our gloves are always sterile and we sort of operate uh, in, a, in a contagion-free zone. And I find that a really problematic uh, model of, of thinking about the way that academic work is produced uh, and then consumed in a sphere the, the ivory tower, perhaps, where, that it's somehow isolated from, from social impact more broadly, right? So the classroom is clearly one space where I would like to think um, that it's contagious, right? Not just that I have a cold right now, but I, I really hope my students are catching something, and I hope that it goes on to impact them outside the classroom. And I also think of my research like that more generally, right? We would all want uh, our, our work to, well, maybe I take that back, not... We wouldn't all want, but I think many people writing and researching in the field of religious studies would want our work to be read by broader audiences and to sort of bring those ideas to bear on their comportments and their, their sort of public understanding of issues and maybe even to be taken up in more formal, uh, actionable ways in the public sphere, right? So that sort of a series of shades of gray there based on how we frame that. And I think it's important to, to think about um, our positionality in that larger milieu, right? Are we, are we approaching those questions and those dynamics as public policymakers? Are we approaching those questions and dynamics as members of a discipline that has a particular kind of frame around those issues? Or are we thinking about them somehow as uh, actors on the in-between? And I think one of the advantages of the folks up here on the panel is that all of us in various ways have sort of been um, in the mix on that conversation in ways that sort of destabilize our identity as having sort of a specific location in one of those those nodes, right? I don't think of myself, and I can't really think of myself fairly anymore as existing in the laboratory space, and I can't really think of myself anymore as existing sort of purely in a public policy setting. So I think that um, I just want to submit that sort of specific religious studies uh, perspective on this on this uh, set of dynamics. So, yeah, please. Just, just to quickly augment what, what Evan was, was saying, um, you know, uh, 
thinking of the publics we might have in mind primarily in terms of public policy, and then considering the value or utility of uh, you know a form of uh, regular engagement in the mode of we'll just use you know dialogue between um, disciplines like anthropology or religious studies and uh, government. Uh, you know, of course, we're uh, you know, massively simplifying. You know, there's this monolithic entity government, but that's in fact, of course, not true. What really, what what is really the case are are you know a, a multiplicity of variegated priorities and organizations and entities, not always all on the same page with one another, um, engaged in a variety of projects. Some of whom might be reaching out to you for particular con concerns or goals. Others of, of which might be looking for some other kind of thing. Um, so one of the challenges I think that I found with my colleagues in anthropology has been the tendency to view the problem in broadly monolithic terms. And so when an invitation for some kind of uh, collaboration occurs, um, it is understood broadly to be globally implicated in a set of things that maybe it doesn't make sense to, to uh, you know, view it in those terms. In the other direction, I think one of the things that we, we often are aware of, and several of the panelists have mentioned this, is the idea that there are certain kinds of value added that academics bring to their work in these settings, one of which is nuance and context and so on. But I think it's a reasonable question to ask of colleagues when you're being asked to work with them uh, whether or not there really is room for nuance and context in uh, circumstances where what you're being asked to do is really very specifically, as Peter was saying, instrumentalized for the purpose of A, B, C. And sometimes those are uh, purposes that you might view as uh, legitimate or appropriate or possible. Other times they might be purposes that um, are not in keeping with, you know, your professional identity or the, um, you know, ethical framework within which you work as a professional social scientist of one sort or another. And I think that it's actually useful to really consider when thinking about where these kinds of collaborations and engagements might be valuable or possible, the extent to which you have a reasonable degree of agency in that environment to enact something of value. Um, and just to end that, in, in thinking uh, uh, on some of the things that Evan said and just adding a further element, there's. Uh, one of the things that often happens uh, with anthropology, particularly when it's asked to provide, you know, kind of cultural expertise, is the problem of the concept of culture and what we understand that to be when it gets operationalized in these settings. And there, there really is a problem I, I would describe as of, of temporalities. Um, oftentimes, and with great frequency, it is the case that uh, counterparts with whom one is asked to work are operationalizing a concept of culture that is either obsolete or antiquated or utterly out of step with where you know disciplinary uh, contemporary practice and theory is. And uh, you're now being asked to talk about something that in fact, from your point of view, is already deeply problematic and or work with categories of knowledge that you might already have moved beyond or critiqued. Um, at the same time, it's uh, a situation that I'm happy to admit where what anthropology has done with the concept of culture over the last 20, 25 years is to make it in some significant degree unintelligible or illegible to policymakers. 
um, you know, in the kind of 90s going forward critique of culture. Um, and as that discipline has moved away from this concept, it becomes less available as part of a constructive dialogue that you can have with interlocutors in these different walks of life. So there are different forms of, of intelligibility and lack of intelligibility or legibility, and also I think different limits on the art of the possible around what can happen in these dialogues. And I, I was just suggesting that one good litmus test is whether or not and to what extent you feel like you're going to have the kind of agency you need to enact kinds of things that are consistent with where you understand your, you know, your discipline and your professional identity to be at. Uh, yeah, I actually want to begin with something I probably should have began with, um, which is a disclaimer, and uh, that 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 I uh, we we are not we are we are no longer working for the U.S. government. We're not speaking for the U.S. government. All opinions that uh, that we express today are our own and do not represent the views of the U.S. government. Um, with that said. You know, the work, our work at the Office of Religion and Global Affairs was based on a belief. And that belief was that a understanding of religion, of religious communities, of religious traditions, of religious dynamics on the ground is useful to the work of diplomacy. Um, and we believe, I, I think that, you know, the ethical question uh, that I faced in taking this job was, a, uh, do I think that's the case? And B, do I think that the work of diplomacy uh, is something that I think is uh, I should be involved in? And uh, and I answered yes to both of those questions. And I, I think it's important to realize that diplomacy is not simply government-to-government -government interactions. And the majority of the work that, that we did, I think, in the Office of Religion and Global Affairs was to... Um, to work with people on the ground in the countries that, uh, that we have presence in, to work with civil society, with NGOs, with religious actors and non-religious actors, and to realize that this work uh, is not something that is going to yield uh, results immediately. That when we reach out and work with the youth group or university students, um, we're not striving to have an immediate impact, but we're looking at relationships that will grow slowly and perhaps bear fruit years down the line. Um, so there's, you know, on the one hand, there was the attempt to brief uh, diplomats and, uh, and public servants who were going out into the field so they could understand the, the map that they're participating in, participating in better. But the other side of our work was to really help build relationships and help build relationships with non-governmental organizations, with civil society organizations, with religious organizations, um, that we could then understand those communities better and they could understand the United States and the United States policy better. Um, and I would also like to agree with, uh, with what Evan just said about uh, the relationships between how to sort of mediate the kind of knowledge that we have as academics to this governmental situation. Um, there is an ivory tower, um, although I don't know if the tower is really ivory, uh, but I don't think that, that we should consider ourselves even in the work that we do in the university and in the classroom to be 
pure and, uh, and uncontaminated by the world. I think that would be a big mistake, especially in the realm of, um, the realm of knowledge that's religious studies, which is about the complexity and dirtiness of the world. Echoing certainly uh, what was said about this is not uncontaminated work, or I said it earlier that you know I'm not neutral on the topic of Islamophobia when I research it. I, heaven forbid anyone would be. Um, this is a form of engaged scholarship, and I made uh, my peace with that long before I stepped foot in the State Department. That uh, I'm I'm engaged in engaged scholarship, and um, and there is a certainly a place for that. And in terms of philosophically, I I don't side side with the camp uh, in the academy that uh, we need to be engaged in something that's neutral. I just, I don't know how you can make a case for neutral scholarship and not just on Islamophobia. Um, we all have uh, various interests that come to bear on the very questions we ask in any discipline um, that, we, that we're engaged in. The other thing that comes to mind this question of morality and the, and the, the challenges that you face in doing this kind of work is I, um, I kept reflecting last year on to whom am I accountable? Which communities am I accountable to? Uh, as, as, a, as a professional, as a scholar of religion, well, I am accountable to this, this guild, this, the Academy of Religion. You are one of my communities that I, I'm always thinking about when I do my research, when I do my writing and, and public speaking and other forms of academic writing. What are the standards of scholarship? What, what constitutes you know, uh, sound scholarship in terms of methodology? That, and, and, and how do you, you know, appropriately appropriately translate that into the work that you do, obviously that has to, to, to be a factor here. Um, I, I would like to think that's one of the things that separates me from the professional Islamophobe Robert Spencer. Um, he does not feel accountable to you. Um, and so he still claims the mantle of expertise and there are lots of other things that separate uh, that gentleman from me, but, um, but that, that certainly is one of them in terms of, of uh, who, to whom are we accountable. But I am not only accountable to you and to my, my colleagues here, I, I am accountable to other communities and, and, uh, and, and have other commitments. And they all come together in who I am and how I do my scholarship. And amongst those are my interfaith commitments and my commitments to uh, my fellow Muslim citizens and residents and sisters and brothers and uh, and others who are very much affected by Islamophobia. Islamophobia is not just about negative opinions, it's about people's lives and livelihoods. I'm not neutral on that, and I have commitments to those uh, communities. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen. I have certain commitments, I, I suppose, because I'm a U.S. citizen, right? Um, all of that comes to bear on the work that I do, and, and maybe it complexifies the work, it makes it more difficult. Um, but it also is um, something that, again, just reminds me that there's a lot shaping the questions I ask, the scholarship that I do, and how it bears upon, uh, in this case, at the State Department foreign policy uh, that I must keep in mind. Uh, and, and when I think through the moral implications uh, of this work that I've been doing. Thank you. Elizabeth? Uh, just just as a general observation, I would say that, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of professional ethics questions and uh, accountability issues. Um, uh, in some ways, as though these are, these are new issues when it comes to the relationship between, in this case, government and, uh, you know, government service and, and the academy. And yet, you know, I think if we were to historicize the question, we would see that 
uh, it's, it's, it is nothing new. I mean, if we think about the history of area studies in particular uh, during the Cold War in this, uh, in this country, and we think about Cold War studies and East European studies, um, the establishment of some of the best programs in East European history uh, in this country at the start of the Cold War, um, area studies programs to understand the Middle East during uh, really in the middle part of the latter century, we, we will see, you know, what is self-evident, which is that the United States government has actually funded many programs in the academy. And um, so these are kind of long-standing questions, and I think we're just going through the latest iteration of those in this conversation. And in some ways, I think, you know, the broader question for us in terms of our professional ethics and academics is to recognize what has been the steady creeping corporatization of the American Academy, which means that, um, as we all know as academics, it means uh, a certain kind of orientation when it comes to how we think about um, or the kinds of expectations that are imposed upon us as academics when it comes to grant monies and numbers of students, etc. So I think, you know, the, this, the, the kind of experiences that we've had, and I can speak for myself, but the kind of experience I've had in diplomatic service and the policy arena simply has sharpened my overall awareness of the need to think about the ways in which accountability questions uh, get raised in terms of the independence or putative independence of, of our scholarship. Um, the other thing I would say is that uh, oftentimes I think in asking these questions as academics, we think about uh, the impact of um, you know the policy world on on what we do, I, I think again we we haven't recognized fully, at least in this space of engagement between religion and uh, foreign policy, we haven't really recognized the profound impact of um, you know the the knowledge regimes that we we use in the way in which policy has been designed. I mean, the language of of secularization continues to be hegemonic. It's more examined, I would say. I mean, we wouldn't all be sitting here if it, if it weren't in terms of um, the foreign policy establishment, but the working assumptions about, you know, which religions are, you know, inherently violent, which religions are not, which religions are, you know, modernizable uh, and modernized and modernizing, which, which faith traditions can generate democratization. I mean, I think, you know, the, if, if nothing else, uh, Huntington's Clash book and the Clash articles in the 90s, and then, you know, accompaniments like Kaplan's uh, Bulk and Ghosts. I mean, these are books that basically, you know, help to um, give a kind of new formulation to traditional modernization theory. And so the life, um, you know, the life cycle of, of the kinds of knowledge regimes that we use in the academy and the impact on the policy world, I think, is something that we really haven't come fully to terms with. And I think it not only affects the kind of policy choices that, you know, we consider in terms of religion and, and U.S. foreign policy, but it shapes what questions even get asked, which ones even get on the table. And I think um, that for me was a very, uh, for me it was something that I, I feel like was a gift from um, the work that you know I've done in Washington. It's made me far more attuned and self-critical in terms of the language that I use and the way my students are gonna take that out into the policy space. Um, so I, I think that I think that you know the awareness issue and the professional ethics issue is you know needs to be historicized and we need to 
um, you know, broaden the way we think about it. And then finally, I would also like to come back to this point about timeline. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the policy space is about deliverables and, you know, elected officials want wins and they want them now. And so they want deliverables that they can measure or, you know, uh, present as, um, you know, measurable. And I think uh, one of the things that I came to understand in terms of the work that I did was that without a long view and without some sort of, um, you know, I guess I would say patience and persistence, the kinds of thorny, complex questions that are both, you know, have positive and negative valence when it comes to religion and security, religion and human security in particular, those really do require um, the long view. And I don't know, you know, how you solve that in, in our world, but I, I think without recognizing that, you know, it's going to be a long slog on some of these issues, um, the policy choices are, are not going to produce the outcomes that, um, that we would anticipate and expect. Does anybody, anybody in the audience want to ask a question or make a contribution? Can you introduce yourself first, please? Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Christine Hutchison-Jones. I'm the chair of the New Applied Religious Studies Committee here at AAR. And so I'd really like to pick up on something that Elizabeth said uh, when she was speaking earlier about how we need to help graduate students see beyond the false dichotomy between scholarship and public policy. Um, you're all scholars working in the academy who have um, to use a phrase someone used on a panel I was at yesterday, um, had sort of a side hustle going in public policy, right? Um, I wonder how you see yourselves helping students, A, overcome the idea that it's an either or, um, and B, for students who actually might be interested in moving outside of the academy, whether it's because of the job market or because of just personal inclination, what are the things that you're doing to help direct them toward the kind of work that you think religious studies and anthropology outfit us for in policy spaces? And what resources do you see out there? I mean, even going back to how did you find the positions that you've been in in policy spaces yourselves? So I think that's a great question. Uh, we had a panel last night on sort of conversations between international relations, political science, religious studies as uh, a set of, uh, it's a, as a context for the classroom largely, right? Like what is it that we're hoping to do for students who are working to bridge those bodies of knowledge in their professional development trajectories? And uh, I think there's a lot more to say when we're thinking about sort of at the classroom level. Um, as an educator who works at a DC-based institution, these are very, um, immediate questions, right? My students uh, imagine, I think, immediately after graduation going into uh, policy making or the policy sphere generally. And I think that uh, many of the graduate students that we work with uh, imagine have, like either, well, in, in, inside the Beltway, there's the, the side hustle issue works both ways, right? There's a lot of people who work in the policy arena and have a side hustle in the academic sphere and vice versa too. So, I mean, in terms of finding those positions, I think those are often network-based. I mean, this particular set of fellowships was advertised widely in sort of AAR-based uh, materials, but there's lots of other opportunity like this um, 
if you sort of follow in the, if you sort of get hooked into think tank networks or to, to various circles like that so I think it is about having networks and I think that those networks can be really valuable for us as educators and helping keep our students connected to, to internship opportunities to events at think tanks because those they're they're immediate right they're they're real and human networks Okay, um, in terms of what I do with my students um, as a political scientist and at a place like Fletcher, um, and before I was at Fletcher, I was at BU and in the um, International Relations Department where they had a program on IR and religion before that as a postdoc, then teaching at the Woodrow Wilson School. So in places, again, that are kind of in, interdisciplinary um, and I guess, um, you know, scholar practitioner spaces. Um, but for students of political science who are interested in religion, um, first of all, I just encourage them to, uh, to um, not be in, intimidated and dissuaded from their interest in the study of religion and for, um, you know, careers and professional opportunities that deal with religion. Um, and I, I think they need that encouragement oftentimes uh, because uh, people who work on religion and political science oftentimes do get treated as though they're sort of working on this little interesting kind of cottage, uh, you know, subject, um, and it's really uh, not fully mainstream. Or they may be, um, or there's the, the kind of lingering sense that you know, if you work on religion, you must be religious. You must have a religious agenda, and so I. You know, I speak these things openly for students to examine them and also sort of get a sense of whether they're active in their own student environments or the classroom so that, you know, they can um, more easily explore things that might be of interest to them. Um, I try to help them find the intersection of, I guess, what I would call interesting, meaningful, and lucrative. I mean, that's what most students want today, right? I mean, if you can sort of hit that trifecta, I guess, you know, your life is good, you know? Um, so I help them sort of think about the ways that they can do that. And most importantly, I think I press them to, um, you know, recognize the way that ideas matter. And they're, they're presumably in grad school because they understand that ideas are important. and. Um, what are the ideas that they think are going to most shape their lives and they want to sort of explore in terms of the professional work they do. Um, and then the final thing is I also encourage them to think a lot about the fact that, you know, the academy and, um, you know, public policy or diplomacy, they're both forms of service. I mean, uh, you know, I may be a sort of, you know, outdated dinosaur. I mean, the reason I, I you know, was drawn to the academy is because I loved teaching and for me it was a way to serve and to offer. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's a real compatibility and overlap in that Venn diagram and helping students to recognize the service dimension, um, you know, of, of the academic and the policy space is usual, useful, particularly for those who are interested in religion and where that may seem quite intuitive then. If you're, you know, interested in religious practitioner work or NGO work, I mean, service is, is intrinsic to that. Um, so those are the things that I, I really sort of help them, uh, push them to think about. And then I just encourage them in terms of professional associations to, to be broad and to uh, cross boundaries. Um, and and I, nine times out of 10, students are, are, are very excited about what they discover. 
interesting. If I could just subscribe to a lot of what Elizabeth is saying in particular, the part of my religion major education that I didn't talk about is essentially the most important part. I did phenomenology of religion in addition to studying aspects of the Dharmic religions on an anthropological level. That is so important because you develop an awareness of your own thinking and your own perception of what you're encountering. Uh, and it's evolution as you change, as you accumulate experience. That is so essential, I think, in diplomacy to engaging not only faith-based civil society, but almost anyone cross-culturally. Um, and it's an essential toolbox. So I, I would say that in, the, in addition to being aware of your own spirituality or lack of it uh, when you go into an encounter, I think it's very important that you have this view, constant view of yourself and how you're viewing the world because sometimes subjectivity and intersubjectivity is far more important than doctrine, uh, you know, given essentials of, of a situation, whether it's diplomatic or in a religious tradition. So phenomenology of religion. Thanks. Thank you so much for all this input. My question is, I heard a couple of you talk about using your sabbatical time for this. And so I have two questions around that. For um, people who are at institutions who expect kind of, you know, the traditional product from your sabbatical of a book or whatever it might be, how did you account for the productivity of your sabbatical time to your administration, your committees? And then secondly, around timing, particularly with the AAR Loose Fellowship position, you guys might not have known, I don't think you did, until maybe a year before that you were going to be doing this. So then when you kind of submitted your sabbatical plan, assuming that's a requirement at your university, how did you do that? What did that look like? Thank you. I'll say one thing, one thing about timing and government service. Um, in, uh, in the positions that we had, we needed to acquire security clearance. And um, this complicated complicates the issue of timing because security clearance is not something that, um, that happens overnight. It happens over many nights, um, many months of nights. Uh, and it could go anywhere from you know, six weeks to a year, year and a half to achieve your security clearance. So in order to, to do the kind of work that we were doing, there needed to be a built-in flex flexibility uh, to start when we were cleared, start when they were ready to have us, rather than the, the usual, we'll, we'll start you know, September to, uh, to August situation. So that's, that's a complicated wrinkle. Um, I think we should just sort of talk about just at the very, at the very beginning. So. Uh, I got to be the inaugural loose fellow because my security clearance paperwork came through slightly before Jerome's. You were less problematic than me, I guess. I, I had put on the forms that I had not met with any Russian oligarchs, and in fact, uh, he is one. So, uh, just on TV. Just on, only on TV, though. So at any rate, uh, I think that's a great question. This is, in many senses, uh, in many ways, a, a practical set of questions, right? So. Uh, first, I have an advantage of working for an institution that that places particular value on government fellowships. It's this is sort of a, a 
a, not a standard practice, but a common practice in sort of DC area institutions and public policy schools. Um, even though it's not as common in the College of Arts and Sciences at American University, there is there are clear models for the ways that those fellowships are uh, reviewed by deans in, in tenure processes. So this is a post-tenure fellowship, and uh, I had sort of in my sabbatical proposal paperwork imagined uh, the kind of a book that would emerge from this, uh, which in the version that was proposed there uh, would have been uh, a relatively linear development of the work that I had been doing in article form immediately before the sabbatical, uh, buttressed and expanded by uh, interaction with some of the same groups that I had been working with as a researcher vis-a-vis -a, -vis a position in government, right? So to sort of be able to think about the, the policy space I'd already been writing about, but to have another perspective on it. Um, I'm not gonna write that book. And so uh, part of my issue in sort of the post-fellowship uh, period has been sort of how do I make sense of that as something that is added to my professional experience portfolio? I'm not totally settled on that matter. I think I learned quite a bit, and I don't think that uh, I will be writing directly out of it in the way I had anticipated up front, right? So I think that we can all be honest that um, when you tell uh, your department or your deans or whoever what your plan is for a sabbatical, and when something different happens, you know, a few years down the line when the project actually begins to get realized, people are not surprised about that, right? So I, that nonlinear relationship is probably going to have to be perfectly fine. In terms of the question about timing, um, I the cycle of the fellowship proposal ended up being that applications were during the summer, that the fall, once the process was sort of wrapped up in September and October, I guess that was of 2015, there was a period of time in the fall semester that was uh, the security clearance time and I ended up having to make some arrangements to have my sabbatical for a calendar year as opposed to for an academic year and you know there's there, there are logistical hassles about that but they're they, they were foreseeable given the timing of the application cycle and my institution was willing to work with me on those because I was like you could you could set that up in advance so I, I feel lucky that things fell into place the way they did but um, it requires foresight and juggling yeah, so I, I had to um, go through the same process, and my security did take a little longer, so it actually delayed the start of my um, my fellowship in a little bit, and I had to tinker with the timing of it. I, and fortunately, on the State Department side, they're they're flexible in that, so you could you could do a twelve months, you can do slightly shorter. In theory, you could go longer, um, and so that helped a, a bit, but it did affect my my start date. And so on your end, you have to think about things like that when you. Um, when you do this, okay, good. Uh, in terms of the product of a sabbatical, when I was doing a sabbatical plan, you know, I teach at a liberal arts college, uh, so they're, they're more than happy if you have a book or some articles coming out of this, and I, I do have a book coming out next year that was written partially during my sabbatical, though not necessarily based on, directly on my State Department work. I, the, the book was conceived prior to me entering the State Department, and, and I would have written it uh, whether I did this, this fellowship or not. But, the, but what I put in my sabbatical plan was about coursework and teaching, and how would, this, how would I come back to my campus and how this would affect my teaching. Some of it in terms of adjusting current courses I teach. I teach a course on Islamophobia. It's a survey course on it. Um, 
I'm teaching it now this fall. What does that look like that's different? You know, and, and I, I mentioned some ways I hope this could change uh, aspects of that teaching, what I assign, uh, trying to do a little bit more of the applied aspect of uh, responding to Islamophobia from a policy, a policy perspective. And so we've done some of that work in the classroom that's similar to the kinds of conversations I had at the State Department, and I wouldn't have been able to pedagogically translate that in the same way had I not done this work. Um, I also teach a study abroad course in Islam in Europe. Um, just to be in the most obvious way, I, I made connections and developed relationships in the, my work at the State Department that will directly have an impact on uh, the planning I do or I am doing for a course I will conduct in January and in future years on Islam in Europe. Where I go visit, um, I'm interacting a little bit more with embassies now as I plan that course. Uh, prior to my State Department work, I usually didn't reach out to embassies for assistance. You know, actually, I found in many cases embassies are more than willing to to be a bridge for you in terms of, of planning uh, that kind of coursework if you want to do study abroad, um, have study abroad being something that comes out of this. So that's how I made the case for the sabbatical in terms of what, how it would come back to Luther College where I teach, how it would affect Luther College, how it would affect our students, and finally, how would it help me as a mentor to undergraduate students. Going back to the previous question, you know, what, do you, what can you do with a religious studies major or minor, or just any student who engages to some degree in the academic study of religion and, uh, as an undergraduate? And I wanted uh, to be able to, to be better as a mentor in terms of the conversations of you know, getting past the assumption that you only study religion if you're interested in religious professionals, like, you know, be a, a, a member of the clergy or whatnot, which a lot of undergraduates assume that. You know, and th this was a way to help, um, uh, and, and continues to be a way to help undergraduates at my institution understand uh, the applied aspects of the study of religion. What can you do with it? Well, here was one thing I did with it, right? Um, and, uh, and, whoa, it'd be great if you could go into this work and instead of it being a year, you, you spend your career in the State Department uh, with, with the academic uh, cr credentials in the study of religion and, and then applying that to policy making amongst many other possibilities. So um, making that case in an institution that values teaching and what they really want to see out of, out of sabbatical is how, how will this affect your teaching and how will it affect our students. Uh, I found the institution quite supportive of me doing this and uh, very encouraging, even though I didn't have the Washington network uh, in Iowa. Thank you. This has been a very enriching panel. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Carol Ferrara. I'm a late stage graduate student in anthropology, actually, at um, Boston University. And so I actually have two quick questions. One is for Todd, because you told us all about this new term that you came up with, but you didn't tell us what the term was for radical Islamic terrorism. So I'd love to hear that. Um, but also, I am curious. Uh, so, so this sort of goes on the question that was posed before, and what do you tell your students? So as a late-stage graduate student who also works as an adjunct, and I'm definitely not the only one, I see this really problematic corporatization of the university system that's been mentioned, um, you know, and the, the problems also obviously with the government. And so in hindsight, would you what would you recommend for a graduate student in this sort of um, anthropology, this intersection of anthropology, religion, maybe we also have some experience in Washington, where, where do you go? Do you go into academia or do you go into a career in the government? Since you have the luxury of doing both, if you have to make a decision about career path, um, what would you recommend? Thank you. I was 
wondering if someone would ask me that. Um, and I've been asked before, because I, I allude to it, and I, I have some uh, ambivalence about, should I talk about the kind of work I was doing in the Trump administration in this regard? It wasn't you know, security, classified meetings or anything along those lines. So in, in theory, it's fair game. But I, I apologize if I, if I say that, I, yeah, I, I'm decided not to make public what I told the Assistant Secretary of State um, and yet I, I still want to put it out there as, the, as a challenge that I had in terms of a, what, do you, what, what two or three word phrase do you use that will work in you know, a deliverable, right? That will work in a, a government context that could be heard by maybe the Secretary of State and others uh, that's not offensive to Muslims or is not as offensive to Muslims. I think we even got to that conversation, you know, the, 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 the grades of offensiveness. Um, that wouldn't undermine completely engaging Muslim communities. So um, those conversations were pretty lively. Uh, but, I, but I do remember he was always very specific. He didn't want to know my personal opinion about it, what I thought was the best phrase. He wanted to know what I thought could be used in a way that would be heard, recognizing that my first sort of take on this was, well, almost all of it's problematic. Even countering violent extremism is, is, is a problematic phrase. And, and you know, that was the academic in me. And he quickly said, yeah, I get it. <laughs> But I can't go in there with that, you know. I, and, and so, um, yeah, I, I'm going to keep the rest of that uh, between me and the assistant secretary. I, I think just uh, in terms of some confidentiality. But it was a very difficult um, assignment to, to to receive, given that most of what I thought would be heard had to include some synonym with Islamic uh, or radical, <laughs> right? And uh, um, or even terrorism, and I, and, I, um, and I was pushing back on a lot of that, but it was very clear that in the current administration, they were wanting something that pushed in that direction that I personally and uh, professionally was uncomfortable with, but if I'm there to give advice, then I have to come up with something. I'll pass on the anthropology question to others. I feel like I should answer since I'm the resident anthropologist on the panel. Um, I'm, I'm uncomfortable offering career advice, so I'm not going to go that direction. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, things look differently in D.C. as compared, I think, to other, you know, metropolitan regions for the obvious reasons. And uh, in, in that specific context, you know, the, when, we, when we say government, it's, it's, I think, actually not helpful because it doesn't really give one a sense of where specifically that might be and what specifically your activities might include and so on. Um, so just to give you an idea uh, of how one might go about thinking about that, and then man, I'm happy to talk more with you. Uh, you know, if you are someone like me who's, you know, cultivated this kind of expertise along this frontier of the intersection of culture with policy along different uh, arenas of, of engagement in military, science and technology, diplomacy, uh, humanitarian response, human rights, and so on, um, you know, there are a variety of different government and non-governmental settings for that kind of work. Um, parenthetically, you might know that the U.S. is unusual in not having a ministry of culture. Uh, we, we have instead a, a potpourri and like a collection of cultural organizations and agencies. Uh, I mentioned one, which was the uh, Educational Cultural Affairs in, in the Department of State, but there's you know the Smithsonian, there's the uh, Library of Congress, there's the uh, NEA, the NEH, there's, you know, and so on. 
um, which is, so there's a sort of distributed approach to, you know, kind of where questions of cultural expertise might be located um, there. And so the first step is to kind of decide what is a, a, an issue or a topic or a concern of mine, and where does that, how does that get distributed across government and non-governmental work? Um, and try to be systematic about that. You know, like what does that map look like? You know, that organizational map. And then that I think is sort of the first step to considering where you might want to train more more of your attention. Yeah. And I wanted to extend my compassion. It's a tough job market, and it's uh, it's hard that it's hard to get into the State Department right now. Um, there are just not a lot of easy ways to onboard, and. Um, it's hard to make a living as you develop your networks and figure out where your expertise can be used. So keep your chin up and keep in your community that loves you and values you and knows how smart you are as you make your way. Can, can, I, can I offer something? Um, yeah, I think um, it's important to be entrepreneurial as, a, you know, about, as an about to finish PhD, whether you stay in the you know, kind of strict confines of the academy or go outside. Um, and I think, again, the direction of the academy is in terms of entrepreneurialism. Uh, I think the intense corporatization of the academy and the, which is expressed in the, you know, um, pervasiveness of adjuncts, which are really a form of indentured servitude, uh, is, is something that has, is to the detriment of um, what the academy is supposed to be about. And so my advice to you, both as a, an academic and also as a woman, is that you um, recognize that the things that inspired you to study anthropology can probably be applied in a wide variety of spaces and to think um, you know, entrepreneurially about those spaces and creatively about those spaces because at the end of the day, the work that you're gonna do as an intellectual can happen in so many different contexts, but it can only happen well if you have security and feel dignity. And I think those are things that are um, far too under-discussed um, with you know uh, students as they enter and exit PhD programs. So um, be be confident and and um, and and make the choice that works for you because then you'll be able to do the kind of work that you want. Hi, I'm Suzanne Abadian and um, I am um, a Franklin Fellow at the State Department. I'm the next generation and uh, an American Academy of Religion Loose Fellow as well. And I just wanted to introduce myself because I can imagine I can learn a lot from all of you. I've already spoken a little bit to Jerome and briefly to Todd on phone. And uh, but I would love. I'm also a, an anthropologist and a political economist. I have multiple uh, backgrounds and hats, and uh, very interested in how I can be effective in the short span of time that I have because. Uh, I've been there now a few months. I feel like I've just been putting my anthropologist hat on all this time, getting to know the terrain and this environment that I'm in, um, as it's changing even, as it's evolving. Um, so also, Peter, I've, uh, I'm in the IRF office, International Religious Freedom. So um, I would love to learn from all of you. I have only, it feels I know you guys felt this possibly. I feel like it's such a short 
span of time. And I want to, you know, be effective as much as I can, make a difference as I know you all did and wanted to do. So just wanted to introduce myself instead of coming to you individually and saying this is who I am. So thank you for also, I know what it took for you guys to be there and uh, the service that you did. So I appreciate that a lot. Well, we have um, another five minutes. You want to take the last question? Sure. Thank you all again for your service and for your speaking today. It's been very, very interesting and helpful. I was struck by the discussion of the Commission on Religious Freedom and this idea that the U.S. is monitoring what's going on in religious freedom with all of these different countries. And to me, my instinct was, isn't that Human Rights Watch? Isn't that the U.N.? I was surprised that the U.S. government was doing that, which made me think about in your experiences in policy in the State Department, how are people discussing the role of the United States and the assumption that people make about the US? And are those assumptions, as have been alluded to, sometimes the assumptions that we come in with are unspoken and sometimes they are spoken and discussed and dissected. So I just wanted to know, was that going in in the work that you've done in policy talked about and examined or did people just come in with assumptions and those assumptions are embedded in that institution and it wasn't examined? When I first um, came on uh, board in the summer of 2016, this was in the midst of the, you remember the, Bur the Burkini controversy in France and the various French towns and regions banning um, basically Muslim women from wearing too much clothes um, in, in certain public spaces. And uh, I remember having internal conversations both in my offices and with a few people outside my office about, about that. And well, how, how should the United States respond to that was sort of a, a question. And I remember someone, another office higher up the chain saying, well, the United States should not make a public statement about that in terms of religious freedom. Um, maybe that's something to do behind the scenes with France because France is an ally. But, you know, that's, we, don't, we don't name and shame our allies. And, then I, and I immediately thought, well, we have an entire international religious freedom report that if you want to be cynical about it, it could be all about naming and shaming, right? Um, but who, who do we get to name and shame? And, and then when is it not naming and shaming, but you know, it's working behind the scenes? And yeah, I, I found the whole paradigm problematic and the assumptions behind it problematic. But I, I remember I felt like I was sort of running against the wind on that one. I, I was like, well, you know, given what I did, I, to me this was a manifestation of Islamophobia. And um, you know, how, how might Muslim communities in France receive a message from the United States when it comes to standing standing by its, its professed commitments to freedom of religion and what happens when we are silent on that because it happens to be an ally. And, and that was at a certain time and, and eventually a, a, a statement of sorts did come out later. But, um, but I, I remember the, the, the very uh, dialogue sometimes inside the State Department around freedom of religion uh, sometimes was difficult for me because it, se it seemed like that was there are some unexamined assumptions, including assumptions about the United States and its own track record, which is not necessarily, when you engage with foreign policy, the, the State Department's uh, uh, role, but, um, but to what extent uh, did we have policies that exacerbated some of these uh, challenges for freedom of religion? But I, 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 uh, I, I confess I was not very skilled at having those conversations initially. It took me a while, and maybe I, I didn't fully learn even after I left. Um, how to do that in a, in a better way, but, I, but from the very narrow slice of policy work that I did, which was uh, pertaining to uh, Muslim communities in Europe, and which included freedom of religion, 
Uh, I did find it frustrating at times in terms of some certain assumptions that were made that, but when we talk about Muslim communities in Europe, the, 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 the countries that might have supported such policies, I felt sometimes are given a lot more latitude than if uh, you have restrictions on freedom of religion in a Muslim majority context, uh, where, that, where we would shout that out. I couldn't shout that out when it came to France, and I, I, I felt disturbed by that, at least. We're, we're um, at 11.30, but I'm glad that a little community is formed here, and thank you all for your time and attention.